New York City is a place of endless discoveries, but sometimes it's nice to escape the concrete jungle for greener pastures. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're heading north, roughly 30 miles north of Manhattan, to be exact, to Kaikit, otherwise known as the John D. Rockefeller Estate in Sleepy Hollow. Its views are spectacular and its history rich. I talked with two individuals with great knowledge of and appreciation for the property. My name is Cynthia Altman, and I'm the curator at Kaikit, so my responsibilities are taking care of the art collections and some of the and the Japanese garden and some of the more special parts of of the property um, that belongs now to the National Trust. I'm Larry Letterman, and I'm here because I uh, photograph the uh, the gardens over a period of time for the book, which is called The Rockefeller Family Gardens: uh, An American Legacy. Cynthia, let's start off with a name. First of all, what does Kaikit mean? Oh, Kaikit is the name of the house, and the word itself um, is derived from the Dutch, meaning lookout. The house was built on the highest point in the area, so the views in all directions are quite wonderful. So, um, it was uh, the settlers coming up the Hudson, of course, were Dutch, and so that was uh, the name that the Rockefellers then adapted for their house. The views are no doubt amazing, looking at the Hudson River and the Palisades. Yeah, the views to the west are are um, very, very beautiful. You can see even beyond the Hudson to the Palisades and the range beyond that as well. And then also up north um, to Havistraw Bay and a little bit beyond. Larry, when did you first discover Kaikit? That's a good question. Uh, I think I think I started in uh, 2011, but I first went up to uh, Maine uh, to photograph uh, the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller Garden in Maine. And um, I was there in August of uh, 2011. That's when I started. And uh, after I finished doing that, I spent about four or five days there. I sort of camped out. And then uh, I came back and I realized how extraordinary the garden was. And I then wanted to see a kaikit and get a uh, chance to uh, look at it. And I didn't know about the Japanese garden at the time, but I wound up getting permission to come up and photograph, and that's how it started. Cynthia, what's the history of this property? Um, well, the Rockefellers came up to this part of the Hudson uh, in the 1890s, and um, John D. Rockefeller was looking for a place to escape the rigors of city life, where the business and main place of residence was. Um, Kaikit itself, the house, was finished in 1913. There was an earlier version finished in 1908. And the gardens actually date to 1908, designed by William Wells Bosworth, who also designed close to us Untermeyer Gardens in Yonkers. Um, Three generations uh, of Rockefellers lived here. John D. Rockefeller lived a long life and died in 1937. And then John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Abby Aldrich Rockefeller were the next generation. Um, And then when John D. Rockefeller Jr. died in 1960, the house and 
gardens while they were jointly owned by the next generation. It was Nelson Rockefeller who took on the stewardship and residence in the house. So he lived there from the early 60s with his family until his death in 79, at which point the house gradually and gardens gradually started going to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. In the early 90s, the property was open to the public. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, administered the property for the trust and um, had the stewardship of the property as well, which means they take care of all of the um, collections and the grounds. So now uh, there's a conference center on site to host meetings sponsored by associated organizations. Um, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund's main interests and programs have to do with creating a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Um, and so their main programs are in southern China, in the western Balkans, and then there's a program in New York, an arts program. So it's varied and not particularly focused on, on um, historic properties and gardens. So we're a little bit ancillary to their main, um, their main programs. How big is this property? Within the gates, there are about uh, almost 300 acres. Um, a, third, a third of it is still in private hands, um, but as David Rockefeller has passed away, eventually that probably will come, most of it will come under the umbrella of the National Trust as well. There are still private uh, residents here, but, but 300 acres is the number within the gates. And then to the north, um, there are more properties, the Rockefeller State Park, is to the north and the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, which was founded in 2004, is to the north. Originally, the prop entire property was about 3,000 acres. Larry, when you first came to Kaikut, what struck you most about this site? How beautiful it was. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Uh, I hadn't experienced anything like it in a way. I had come up to see uh, the beech grove. I'm interested in trees, as you know. I uh, photographed trees at the Newark Botanical Garden, and so that was an interest of mine. I wanted to uh, see the grove, uh, and I actually, uh, there's a little piece in, in the book that I that I participated in uh, where I say the first day I wound up, it was raining, and I wound up uh, sitting in the grove uh, getting the benefit of the canopy. So that's how it started. But then I was able to explore a little, and I got to the top, and I was able to look out, and I said, wow. <laughs> what were you hoping to capture in your photographs of Kaikut? Well, I wanted to experience it first, and then I wanted to be able to sort of express its vistas, its own uh, internal logic, uh, its beauty, and the way it was integrated. So those are all part and parcel of uh, what you do when you photograph a garden. But also what you try to do is try to get the spirit of the place and its genius. And uh, that takes quite a bit of doing. And you can't just come on one visit and, and get it. You have to really see it in all seasons. And you have to start to understand uh, what the people who built the garden really got out of the garden and uh, how they changed it over time. And that's all, so it's layered, and it's a palimpsest in effect. And that's all part and parcel of getting uh, the photographs. Uh, and then there's another aspect to it, 
as a photographer, uh, you play with the light. And the light is very, very important. And as you can see, here we have a wonderful day. And the light changes all day. Uh, the garden changes all day. It's never the same garden. I come here today and I look at it. And it's different from, uh, from any time I've seen it before. But that's always the case. So it's a surprise. So that's a sort of a welcome, a wonderful thing about a garden. Did you have a favorite season in which to photograph here? Well, there are two seasons which are glorious, no doubt. And that is the spring, uh, when the azaleas and all are, are in bloom, and they just light up the place. And, uh, and in the fall, when the maples all turn color. So, uh, and everything, uh, so it's sort of like a, you, you think of it like sound waves. Uh, the, uh, you come in and you get this enormous explosion, uh, you, get, you come into a valley for a while as the seasons change, and then you come back and it explodes again, and then it becomes quiescent in the winter. But the winter is, is very lovely in its own way because it's very, very quiet, and you see the garden sort of preparing itself to, uh, to burst out in the spring again. Cynthia, how did this property evolve through the different generations of Rockefellers? Um... Well, we, as Larry said, we do look at it as as a layered um, garden and property now. With John D. Rockefeller Sr. was interested, very much interested in the landscape, the rolling hills and the, and the trees. He he loved to transplant large groves of trees, and the beech grove actually dates from the early earliest generation. And also the the garden sculpture or some of the sculptures that that um, are based on Renaissance models uh, come from the 1908 design of the garden. Um, the next major change happened when Nelson Rockefeller moved in. He he collected 20th century sculptures. So throughout the gardens, we have a collection of about 90 um, sculptures. Um, he had he. A great talent in choosing the sites for all of the sculptures, and and Larry's captured the um, juxtaposition of the modern pieces with, for instance, in the beech grove with the trunks of the beeches, the smooth granny's knot, the tajiri, um, white fiberglass piece sits in the center of a copper beech grove, and so you see the the massive trunks juxtaposed with the very smooth white. Um, forms of the Tajiri, and then the, there's also one of Alexander Lieberman's um, iconic orange-red pieces in the beech grove, again, which pick up that. Um, so the last two decades, when Nelson Rockefeller was here in the 1960s and 1970s, um, uh, were a time when a number of the modern pieces came here. And since then, um, nothing really has been added. We work hard to keep things as they were. When, um, when that last generation left. Who are among the artists represented here? Oh, goodness. Um, Alexander Calder, Henry Moore, Aristide Mayall, Lachaise, Nodelman, uh, Tony Smith, and uh, we have a, a wonderful piece by David Smith that sits on the west porch called The Banquet, and you can look through it to the Hudson, um, Louise Nevelson, um, Noguchi, Picasso, we have um, one of Picasso's two casts of the bathers, the sculpture of the bathers that New York was lucky enough to see the, um, in the spring. The, the original came from Stuttgart, the wooden forms, and, and we have a bronze of that. So um, 
I could go on. <laughs> but When we arrived, there was this magnificent fountain that greeted us. Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, uh, well, the fountain in the forecourt is an exact replica of John Bologna's Oceanus in the Three Rivers, which is in the Boboli Gardens in Florence. And uh, the sculpture at Kaikit was commissioned in 1915. It was actually carved in Florence um, by uh, Romanelli. And um, we recently tracked down his descendants who were still carving in Florence. Um, it was shipped over in, I think, 17 crates um, and assembled on site. And the bowl, the huge granite bowl, was quarried up in Stonington, Maine. So it really is a magnificent um, uh, point in in the forecourt itself as you as you arrive yeah Larry right now we are standing in the Japanese garden at Kaikut what were you looking to capture here well I was surprised by it first of all I wasn't even I didn't know that it existed uh, and then I walked through two hedges which is the private entrance and it's very unobtrusive uh, and you walk down steps and you enter into a wonderland because you have a garden which is walled, totally separate from the rest of the property. Uh, it's it's on the side of a hill, so it, it blocks it's blocked from the estate, and it has its so it's its own enclave. And in the enclave is another world. Uh, it is uh, based on gardens in Kyoto, and uh, but it has its own character. It has its own light, and I hadn't seen uh, maples this mature. I hadn't seen the juxtaposition of the uh, azaleas and the way it was set up. And what I hadn't seen also, and I had looked at many, many photographs of, of, of gardens and so forth, I hadn't seen how brilliant it was in terms of the way it sparkled in, in the spring and in the fall. I mean, the, uh, the colors are beyond measure, and I have never seen any photographs of anything like this garden. Uh, this garden has its own climate, really, because it's on the Hudson, and it's uh, totally sheltered. It has its own canopy. It has a hill that protects it, and so it, and it's very, very old. It's venerable in that it dates back to 1909. How much time would you spend here when you were shooting your photographs? Um, the most time I spend is about three hours. Basically, I try between two, uh, two and a half hours, and uh, it gives me time to walk around. It gives me time to uh, see the changes of light. Uh, I come, uh, I usually either come in the morning or I come in the evening, and I, uh, and depending on the uh, time of year, the light changes. You know, you get dark very, very early in the winter, and it doesn't get dark until much later in the spring. So you have the, this variation and so forth. But I, I like to follow the sun, and uh, I like to sort of go through the whole garden and find things that look different from the way I'd seen it the day before, the week before, and so forth, because they change, and when they do, they're a surprise, and I try to capture it. Let's put this out there. You are a self-taught photographer. You actually have a law background, right? Right. No, I... I was trained as a lawyer. That's where I got my training, and I practiced law. Yes, I was a corporate lawyer. I did mergers and acquisitions, and I worked. I was chairman of the corporate practice at Milbank Tweed. So I didn't spend any time at all uh, 
uh, doing uh, visual things until much later in life. Uh, and I started about 15, 16 years ago. What inspired the transition? My own property. Uh, I, I like the trees. And I also was on the board of the New York Botanical Garden, not because I had knew anything about, uh, really about gardens and so forth, but I had helped them a number of legal problems that they had. So they said, okay, you come on the board. And uh, when I started with the photography, I realized that uh, I'm on the board and I hadn't spent any time at the Botanical Garden. So I would get up early in the morning on a Saturday and I would go into the garden and I started photographing. And then I photographed on Sundays. And slowly but surely I realized there's limits to what I can do. And so I have to sort of learn. So I spent time reading and uh, going to museums. Got very interested in art because the fact is you can... Photography has to be learned from the artists. Cynthia, when you look at Larry's photographs, do you see Kaikut any differently than you do every day working here? Well, Larry's photos really quite magically um, capture the juxtapositions of forms and and the the um, trees, the plantings, the shrubs. Um, I. That Larry's photos make me slow down a little bit, which is wonderful, um, just to take time um, to look very closely at, at things. So as far as seeing things differently, I think they've made me focus and appreciate the, uh, the pace and wish I could spend three hours in the Japanese garden <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who were among the chief designers of the gardens here? Um, the main... Well, Frederick Law Olmsted's firm was involved early on with John D. Rockefeller in some of the layouts of the roads and the basic... Of Central uh, Park fame. Of Central Park fame. Um, and then um, the gardens immediately around Kaikit were designed by William Wells Bosworth. Um, Bosworth uh, also designed the gardens, did I say this already, in Untermeyer Park in nearby Yonkers. And then he went to France, and he was the one who... Um, helped to um, administer the donations that the Rockefellers made for uh, the restoration of Versailles and Rems and Chartres Cathedral after World War One. So he stayed in France the rest of his life. The Japanese garden initially was uh, designed um, with the rest of the gardens in 1908, and then it was expanded and um, enhanced in the early 60s uh, with the help of David Engel, um, who had studied in Kyoto. And at that time, the tea house was built also. There was a prior tea house here, which was moved to another site on the estate. And this structure, a Shoin-style tea house, was uh, designed by the eminent architect uh, Yoshimura Junzo, who... Um, is not all that well known in this country. He designed the modernist building that Japan Society is now in near the UN, the Black Box. But the, this particular tea house has been here since 1962, I think. Yeah. Beyond the Japanese garden, what other cultural influences are reflected here at Kaikut? Um, well, the main gardens, of course, are uh, primarily drawn um, from uh, Italian garden design with the terracing um, down. It was uh, Italian garden designs were very much um, appreciated in the early part of the century. Um, Bosworth also took elements from other uh, traditions. There's a, an allee of um, European linden dating again to 1908 
that um, it comes out of French garden design, and there's um, a rill um, that you'll see in some of Larry's wonderful photos that, that comes out of the Islamic tradition. So there, um, Bosworth appropriated many, um, many different styles, but primarily the, the Italian garden design is what, what is reflected in the main gardens above. Larry, as we were walking down to the Japanese garden here, you were talking about the terraces and the importance right. of the terraces. Well, uh, yes. Uh, I think it's, it, the terraces are a natural outlay of the fact that the, the house itself, Kaikit, is at the top, is at the pinnacle. Uh, if you have a house at the pinnacle and you, everything falls off, you have to terrace to be able to appreciate and get from one layer to the other. Uh, it's like having steps. That's what the terraces do. Uh, the terraces, though, wind up with their own character, and each terrace has a quality to it. What Nelson did, the genius of Nelson was, Bosworth designed these gardens with separate rooms. So a Beaux-Arts garden, which this is a prime example of, uh, has a sense of the garden echoing, in fact, qualities of the house. And so you go in the garden and you go from room to room to room, and uh, and each room surprises you, in effect. And that's the nice thing about uh, complex gardens, is that you can't see it all at one, uh, wherever you stand. No matter how high up you are, you cannot see uh, all aspects of the garden. What Nelson did was he made the rooms into galleries. So the art is in these rooms, and that also changes the quality of it. And as Cynthia indicated, the placement of the art is absolutely brilliant. It really borders on genius as far as I'm concerned because he does things that are always surprising you. For example, uh, you know, the Lieberman that we mentioned, uh, it's a huge piece. It would have pride of place in most gardens, I mean, or uh, Granny's Notch, same thing. Uh, they would be out somewhere. Uh, he puts them in the grove, and so you encounter them only by encountering the grove, and, uh, and they relate one to the other. And you have the same feeling about uh, all, when you walk into a room, the room now has these uh, wonderful pieces in there, and you say, what is he saying? Right? How am I supposed to experience this? And he's telling you how to experience it, because he experienced it. And he's giving you, a, in a way, he's guiding you through the rooms. So that's a wonderful aspect of it. Cynthia, what do we know about how the Rockefellers utilized these gardens? Would they stroll and enjoy, invite people over? Well, um, on the earlier generations, we don't really have too many records, except that there was an annual birthday party for John D. Rockefeller, and he invited lots of people to come, and there was music, and... Nelson Rockefeller, uh, the middle generation, again, is quite um, quiet about what happened, although, of course, there were um, dinner guests all the time, and there was um, the office where 
discussions of the founding of Rockefeller University, Rockefeller Foundation, those organizations all had their birth about the time that Kaikit was built. Um, when Nelson was here, he was in public life. He was governor of New York. So there were many large gatherings um, that were related to the governor's club or you know various um, uh, functions that were happening because of his public role. Yeah, I mean, they, they all enjoyed it. They had a good time here. Uh, the kids learned how to swim in, in the fountains, <laughs> and and uh, and he, I, I, you know, I mean, they just uh, uh, he he came here. He loved uh, this garden. The fact is, uh, in the 1960s, he um, it had sort of gotten a little worn, and and he really refurbished it, and and that's why he moved the tea house and so forth because he wanted. He wanted something more appropriate. There was something he could enjoy, and uh, he came here and enjoyed these gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I feel very, very privileged to be able to come here and be on my own and, and just look at it and take photographs of it. Mm-hmm. The experience of it is something which you know is something which uh, you don't ordinarily uh, have an opportunity to enjoy, but. Uh, there was a family here, and this family had a good time here. Yeah, the tea house, the stone tea house in the inner garden where there were swimming pools, the swimming pools have been taken out to return it to its original design. But there were swimming pools, and in the tea house, he installed a soda fountain, and there was always ice cream for all the little kids, and the, well, not only the little kids, the adults as well. And I have heard stories of... Um, of uh, baseball games near the too near the sculpture, which is why I forgot about them. <laughs> and um, and yes, and the Japanese tea house also was used. There was um, um, a local woman, a Japanese woman, who would come and prepare meals, Japanese-style meals, in the tea house for Nelson and his family. So, so how can the general public come here today? and enjoy these gardens? Oh, um, the, the main house and gardens have been open um, since the early 90s for public tours, May through October this year. They're four days a week um, through Historic Hudson Valley. has a, um, a great staff of about 50 guides who take you through. The Japanese garden, because as you can see, it's a much more fragile space and the footing is a little difficult. Um, we do like to show it as often as possible and many groups come through who are interested in either Japanese gardens, gardens themselves, or Japanese architecture, culture. So so we take um, small groups through several times a year, but, but it's not part of the general tour. But it is part of the National Trust's property here, and we are anxious for it to be seen by as many people as possible. Yeah. Larry, is there a particular photograph in the book that you would say is your favorite? I have many, many favorites. It's impossible. Uh, no, it's really impossible. But I like this area. There is a, a photograph in the book, uh, which is, and, and uh, the, the actually editors did a good job on it because they cropped it a little, uh, and so it made it, uh, so it's a double-page spread of this area here. And we were standing right outside of the tea house, and there's a stone path and so forth. And the stone path, as you can see, divides. So if you come over here, George, just turn around. You see that it divides. You can go this way, and you go that way. Uh, so that, uh, this is this is sort of a, a uh, one of the few 
uh, photographs that I took that really presents the garden in a way of as a garden of choices, and there are paths to be taken. It's, a, it's one of the few spots where you actually can see it that way. Uh, there's also something very interesting here. You see, you see this uh, sculpture here, and this sculpture here. Uh, they look beautifully Oriental, and they're by an American. Very much of a, an Eastern feel to them, a Japanese feel. Um, they were, in the brook garden up above, we have um, two works by Masayuki Nagara, and then Noguchi's Black Sun is there too. But these two are by an American called Will Horwitt, H-O-R-W-I-T-T. Yeah. They're a favorite of mine. Uh, they, they, to me, they speak of the garden itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, I think, is genius on the part of, of a Nelson. So, Larry, what's next for you? What are you photographing now? Uh, I, next year, I expect to have a book out on uh, Olana, which is on the Hudson. It's Frederick Church's home, and it has it's very, very similar in this respect, because it's high up on a hill and overlooks the Hudson River, and it, it's about 250 acres. Much different than being in a courtroom, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was an adversarial lawyer. And I used to wake up always with two or three fights on my hands. Now I wake up, I have no fights. I just look, I look out and I say, what's the day like? I got to find the light. <laughs> Completely different. Uh... <laughs> Larry, thank you so much. Thank you. Cynthia, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, George. Cynthia Altman is Kai Kitt's curator, and Larry Letterman is a photographer who's out with a new book featuring magnificent images of the estate. It's called Rockefeller Family Gardens, an American Legacy. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.